Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it wasn't that long ago that there was a lot of hype and talk and excitement about the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and all of these various countries engaging with one another. Well, that hype has faded in recent months and years, in part because, well, Brazil, it seems like it's on the verge of a medical, political, financial implosion. Um, that is not overstating it, what, given what's going on in Brazil. Russia is having difficulties with the price of oil being as low as it is. India itself seems to be holding on. South Africa, your home country, is certainly not the economic powerhouse that it was a few years ago and undergoing its own political crises as well. So overall, the BRICS um, seem a lot less stable. But that has opened up the opportunity for other countries to engage Africa. And that's going to be the conversation that we talk about today. And in particular, I think one of the areas of focus would be Turkey. Now, Turkey doesn't come up on our radar very much, but Kobus, it's one of those countries that is, is small, but yet very, very interesting. Yes, and, and Turkey becomes a very interesting comparison with China. It shows us ways that that ways in which Africa's trade with other countries are similar and ways that China-Africa trade is, is unique. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk Turkey and, and other kind of middle-sized powers. Wonderful. Well, one man who's been thinking a lot about this these days is Ambassador David Shin, who's an adjunct professor at the Elliott School of International Relations at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He's also a former United States ambassador to both Ethiopia and Burkina Faso, and he's been talking and thinking and writing and speaking on Turkey-Africa relations and also on India-Africa relations. Welcome back to the program, Ambassador Shin. Very happy to join you, uh, Eric and Kobus. Well, we recently had a conversation with uh, authors and journalists Kevin uh, Bloom and Richard Poplock, who brought up this interesting... Uh, anecdotes from their research in their new book, Continental Shift, where they talked about how China's changing trade relationship with Africa and also some of the stumbles that it's had in a number of different countries might be opening up the door for other countries to take advantage of what it's maybe exaggerating it to call it a vacuum, but there are there are some more opportunities now as Africa's trading partners diversify. And I'd be curious to hear about what you're thinking that we've focused on China for so many years because of the trade, the relationship being so dominant and the dollar number so huge. But it's not just about China anymore. There are other countries like Turkey. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you're right. Uh, there's there is an opening. It's um, it's an opening that that one must be a little bit cautious about because uh, you know even Turkey has its internal problems at the moment, and it has a huge problem in neighboring Syria. Syria. So there there may be some limitations on what Turkey can do. But having said that, if you look, for example, at uh, trade invest and investment figures, and particularly the high-level attention that Turkish um, senior Turkish officials have given to Africa in recent years, it's quite astounding. Uh, Turkey has 39 embassies in Africa now, which is phenomenal. That's more than India. Uh, it's more than, than many countries with uh, larger economies than Turkey has. There are 32 African embassies in Ankara, which is also uh, quite unusual that, that so many Africans would be uh, in the Turkish capital today. Uh, trade figures are a little less impressive for Turkey. It's about $20 billion a year 
and most of that is with North Africa. Trade with Sub-Saharan Africa is quite limited. The investment figures for Turkey, uh, like investment figures for most countries, are a bit of guesswork. Uh, according to the Turkish government, depending upon which source you rely upon, it's somewhere between five and, and uh, eight and a half billion dollars, which is, is significant, but it's not, it's not enormous. Um, Turkey uh, also has a, um, a security interest in the continent, uh, not nearly as large as, as China's so far, but it's doing a lot of training of uh, African military personnel, and it's particularly engaged in, um, in Somalia. Uh, its aid figures are still fairly modest vis-a-vis uh, -vis Africa, but they're growing. Uh, it's well under a billion dollars annually in aid, but that's a lot for a country like Turkey. And then one of the most interesting features is Turkish Airlines. Uh, it has 44 destinations in Africa, which I believe makes it more destinations than any other carrier in the world. Now, I don't know how many of those are making money. I suspect a number of them are not. Uh, nevertheless, it's a huge effort by Turkish Airlines. Um, I recently read some remarks uh, that you gave at the Turkish American Cultural Center in, in Wisconsin um, earlier this month. Where you laid out some of these some of these kind of areas in which Turkey Turkey Africa relations are are developing, and I was really struck by how similar to, to China you know kind of it sounds um, you know albeit with with smaller figures but you know kind of the, to, to the extent that Turkey also offers scholarships to Africa that there is navy cooperation. Um, I was wondering to which extent do you feel um, Turkey is taking China as a template for engagement, or to which extent does it rather reveal something about Africa's engagement with the outside world? Well, one of the big differences, of course, between Turkey and China is that um, most, most of the uh, commercial interaction in Africa by Turkey is with Turkish private companies. Uh, they don't have the history of state-owned enterprises like China does. So you're talking for the most part about much smaller operations. And as a result, Turkey seems to be entering what I would call niche markets. Now, the one area where they are competing, uh, sometimes even uh, favorably against China, is in winning of construction contracts, um, you know, cement factories or um, uh, something that you might expect China to be winning the contract on. And occasionally, the Turks uh, are winning those contracts. Uh, I, I think that the Africans see uh, Turkey as, as a country that, one, is an Islamic country, and that has a certain appeal in those countries in Africa that are either predominantly Muslim or have significant Muslim minorities. That may give Turkey something of an advantage. Uh, also, it's, it's much closer geographically to, uh, to Africa than China is, which uh, is something of an advantage. And it may be seen as something of a more neutral country than, than a country like uh, China or Russia or the United States. Uh, it, it's, it's a smaller power, perhaps uh, less threatening in a way. Well, it may be a smaller power, but also its investments are proportionally smaller. I mean, its trade, excuse me, is proportionally smaller. So correct me if I'm wrong on some of these numbers. 
2015 trade figures, ballpark, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, between China and Africa are somewhere north of $200 billion. And trade between Turkey and Africa, and all of Africa, which you said is predominantly concentrated in the north, is about $20 billion, so about one-tenth the size. How does Turkey relate to other countries, ex-China, in terms of its volume of trade, so we can get some context for where it fits? Uh, when you say other countries, for example, what, what India, do you have in mind? say the United States, anybody else except China? Ah, okay. I don't know the uh, the Turkey India trade figures, but in the case of the United States, um, total trade between Turkey and the United States is almost identical to Turkey's total trade with all of Africa. Uh, to give you you some uh, sort of perspective on this. What is also interesting is that of, of Turkey's global trade, their trade with all of Africa is about 5%, which is the identical number for, uh, for China, or more or less identical number. So it, it's, um, it's a, there, there are some interesting comparisons on the trade side. Yeah, and, and how does Turkey and Africa compare with, say, India and Africa, the U.S. and Africa? In other countries, uh, in terms of trade, the Indians have uh, by far a bigger percentage of trade with Africa, and uh, indeed, uh, their global, their their total volume of trade by dollar value is also much higher than uh, Turkey's trade with Africa. In the case of the United States, the dollar value, of course, is much higher. But it's, it's about 1% of global American trade. So the, on the percentage side, uh, Turkey's trade with Africa is significantly greater, but the dollar value much lower because of the size of the two countries. You know, uh, if you, oh, sorry, go ahead. One of, the, one of the more interesting comparisons is, is actually Russia. Uh, Russia's uh, total uh, trade by dollar vo volume with uh, with all of Africa is about twelve billion dollars versus twenty billion for Turkey, and it's only about again about one percent of Russia's global trade, the same as the United States. You know, Kobus, listening to these statistics from Ambassador Shin, it really kind of puts the China-Africa relationship into a very different focus. Here, we're talking Russia-Africa trade, twelve billion, twenty billion with. Uh, with Turkey, and it just goes to show you how huge the relationship with China is at 200, 220 billion. And so, you know, a lot of people may be uncomfortable with those large numbers having it all tied up in one country, but it's going to be impossible to replace China if China decides to pack up and leave, or even to scale down even a little bit. Yes. Um, and it also, I think, puts... Uh, you know, kind of like p p puts them the the way that this, that the relationship is narrated in in context. You know, kind of a, when when one listens to this to to these kind of figures, one realizes why there's so much attention being paid to China-Africa relations, um, and why it it it's so. Um, it so fires the imagination, um, you know, kind of of, of the global media, um, and I, I suppose, you know, kind of um, it, it always has to be has to be balanced though against the the memory of of Africa's relationship with Europe and the United States, um, you know, kind of because so much of the relationship with, with the West has been so unhappy, um, and in lots of ways also so shaping of the way that Africa thought about m what it means to be modern and developed. You know, kind of, there was only one way to be developed, and that is the European or the American way. China offered an alternative alternative to that. And um, Ambassador Shun, I was actually wanting to, connecting to that, I was wanting to ask you, do you see 
other countries like Turkey offering offering an alternative to China, an alternative to the West, or you know, kind of, or, or some other kind of model. Um, you know, kind of like wh where where does where do these kind of growing relationships with these smaller powers um, put the China put put Africa's relationship with the rest of the world? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that a country like Turkey uh, necessarily offers a um, an alternative model to either Western countries on the one hand or or China on the other. Uh, I, I think they're they're just not uh, large enough in the grand scheme of things to sort of play that kind of game. And let's remember, these uh, you know countries like Turkey have their own internal issues now, like freedom of the press and arresting of journalists. Um, I mean, this is a it's a problem that's not unique to Turkey, but it's been a pretty severe problem there in the last year or so. Uh, I, I can't imagine that all governments in Africa want to pursue that, uh, that way of doing business. Um, I, I think that on the private sector side, there may indeed be some, some uh, areas that um, African countries would, would like to emulate uh, from Turkey because the Turkish private sector has been uh, amazingly uh, successful in many ways. And they're willing to take risks uh, to enter areas where other countries in, have not been willing to enter in Africa and to engage in, in businesses that um, some other countries have been reluctant to do, like setting up state-of-the-art um, eye treatment centers or dental clinics. Uh, and Turks have done that. Um, it's really quite amazing some of the, um, the small activities they've gotten into that I think have, have added value to, to a number of African countries. Going back, I would like to go back, however, to one point we were discussing earlier, and that's the, the magnitude of difference in trade figures between China and everybody else. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's the trade figures where the differences are greatest. If you look at differences in, in foreign direct investment, uh, aid, uh, security engagement, then you see a much uh, a greater narrowing of the differences where what India and Turkey and Russia and others are doing uh, is, is not that much different than what China is doing. On the investment figures, for example, um, it's estimated that China's foreign direct investment in Africa is running oh, probably at about $3 billion a year, which is a lot. But it's well below um, the FDI coming from Western countries and it compares to maybe um, a, a billion dollars. Uh, this is an estimate coming from countries like uh, Turkey and, and India. Uh, so it's three times as great, but it's not another you know, 20 times as great as you have with trade figures. Yeah, Kobus, this is a point that a lot of people get confused about because they confuse trade and investment. And if you recall, last year we spoke with David Dollar from the Brookings Institute in Washington who did a survey of investment. And in that case, uh, China is, is far behind even the United Arab Emirates in Africa, ranked number seven overall. And so a lot of people, even some scholars I've seen, uh, get confused in those two. And it's a very important distinction to make between trade, which is about $220 billion, and investment, which is somewhere around 16 or 17 billion. It's a small detail, but one that, that kind of trips people up. 
Ambassador Shin, you brought up the issue of, of, of India, and I think this is interesting in part because Kobuspot raised the point of whether Turkey's kind of putting itself out as an example or a counter to China, uh, whereas, okay, that may not fit, but India is aggressively marketing itself as an alternative to China. And in a lot of official Indian marketing in Africa, they say, well, we are a democracy. We don't uh, import labor the same way that the Chinese do. We, they really position themselves very much in contrast. This is a rivalry that does kind of come across the Indian Ocean from Asia to Africa, uh, where India and China compete vigorously in Asia. Uh, but I'd be interested to hear your comments on how India positions itself in Africa in contrast to the Chinese. Well, you make a good point, and I think you can make a much stronger argument in the case of India being a potential alternative model for at least a number of African countries uh, than, say, Turkey or any number of other countries we might talk about. Um, India has a number of things going for it. One, its, um, its economy right now is doing fairly well, uh, unlike the economies of, of some of these uh, emerging nations uh, like Brazil that are having horrible problems. Uh, it's geographically closer to Africa, which gives it something of an advantage. There are actually larger Indian uh, communities in Africa than there are Chinese um, communities in Africa. It's about three million uh, Indians living in Africa, some of them dating back um, decades or even centuries. For China, it's somewhere between one and, and two million. Uh, India has the advantage, at least in the Anglophone countries, of speaking English, so they don't have to overcome a, a, a real hurdle in just communicating with uh, a lot of the African countries. It has a very powerful private sector, like Turkey does, and I think a lot of uh, countries in Africa find that to be to their uh, liking. And then, of course, the big issue is it's the world's largest democracy. And there are certain African countries that I think find that very attractive. And as a result, um, I, I think you will find increasing numbers of African countries looking, looking to India as uh, possibly borrowing some of what they have accomplished, if they continue to be successful. I was wondering, you know, kind of to 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 come to return to it to an, uh, an earlier thought. I was wondering if if one um, one way of looking at at the, the kind of growing relationship with these countries is that if if there is a if one can say that there is a, a kind of a movement towards smaller countries um, or smaller economies trading with each other, kind of like pulling each other up the ladder. Um, you know, kind of one of the one of the the similarities between the U.S. And or the West and and Africa's and and Africa's relationship with China is that it's both, uh, you know, kind of this giant and, you know, kind of this uh, you know this this very this basically this giant and this ant kind of trading with each other. You know, kind of like economically speaking, I mean, you know, kind of this one a massive economy, another one a very small economy or a set of very small economies. Um, is it realistic to talk about uh, trade between individual, you know, kind of power? Uh, power centers within Africa, like Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, and then stronger but still relatively small, um, say, you know, economies outside, like the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, India, and so on, as a, a different kind of South-South cooperation model, or is that being much too optimistic? No, I, I think that's uh, perfectly appropriate, and I think that, in fact, is happening. I've recently done some work on the six Gulf cooperation states and their interaction, particularly with the Horn of Africa. I did not look at all of Africa. 
but I think that the uh, the interaction with the Horn of Africa is similar to their interaction with um, with other parts of the continent, although it may be more intensive in the Horn. And the one thing that uh, comes out of that is the trade figures are not yet very impressive uh, between the six uh, GCC countries and the Horn of Africa. They're, they're, they're pretty modest. Um, and one of the surprising numbers is that the Saudi Arabian number is, is not the highest. I would have assumed that they would have the greatest trade with the Horn of Africa, but it does not. I believe it's the UAE. Um, on the investment side, however, even though it's almost impossible to get um, countrywide numbers, the anecdotal information is very impressive. Uh, the number of investment activities that um, the GCC countries have going on in the Horn of Africa and also in other parts of Africa. Uh, so that would be one thing that I would look to. Uh, it, it's very hard to get numbers on aid and they're mostly through Islamic charities, uh, which further confuses the matter. Again, I don't think the numbers are all that great, uh, but they're growing. Um, and then on the security side, uh, and this may be unique to the Horn of Africa, you have this kind of new alignment of a number of the Horn of African countries and, uh, well, mainly the Horn of Africa, and the GCC, or at least part of the GCC, uh, aligning um, together against the Houthis in Yemen and also aligning at least indirectly against Iran. Uh, which brings a whole new component into the relationship and, and actually kind of muddies the waters. But um, I, I, I think all of this is contributing to a, a greater degree of um, activity between the GCC countries and, and at least parts of Africa. Uh, and I think you can say the same about um, other countries around the world. We haven't, we haven't really talked much about Brazil because it's in such financial straits at the moment, but Brazil is also another potential, I think, model for Africa if it can get its own act together again. Uh, it was doing very well up until its, um, its economic difficulties, and uh, I think you will see a return of Brazil at some point in the next five to ten years. I'd like to kind of just go back to the top of the show when, when I kind of address the issue of this, uh, you know, this Africa rising narrative, the BRICS, all the optimism. And it didn't even seem it was that long ago when people were still thinking about Africa as the next, you know, great emerging market. Well, today it doesn't really kind of feel that way. Uh, both from a security point of view, Libya is, you know, a failed state. Nigeria is facing very serious problems. Zambia is in difficulty. There's a political crisis in South Africa. And the list just keeps going on and on. Put on top of that, uh, you know, a, a significant drop in Chinese purchases of African oil, which has led to a precipitous drop in bilateral trade. Uh, Chinese investment on the continent is down. And so for people like Kobus and I who kind of go through the headlines every single day, um, it's, there's a sense that we can get very depressed about the direction that Africa is going economically uh, and even on the security and in other ways as well. But you are one of the few experts who has a background in China-Africa relations and but also now has obviously you know, quite a bit of sophistication and understanding with what Africa is doing with other parts of the world. Is my pessimism or you know, fear about the, the, the short-term future for Africa warranted or do you see a different picture? I think I see a somewhat different picture. Uh, what, what's impossible to predict are our future Libyas, our future Central African republics, 
um, where you have a, a collapse, an internal collapse of, of um, governance and, and society generally, and that obviously will have a terribly depressing effect, at least on those countries and probably the wider, slightly wider region. But putting that issue aside, uh, if you look, for example, at World Bank and IMF uh, predictions for GDP growth rates for all of Africa for 2016 and 2017, um, they're down slightly, but they're not down significantly. Uh, I think it's running in the four and a half percent range uh, as far as the the next the prediction for for this year and next year. That's not bad, and um, if those predictions are accurate. Uh, I think you, you can still argue that there's uh, reason for hope in, in Africa as a continent. Uh, there are going to be individual countries that perform very badly, uh, but there are going to be others that, that seem to hold up in spite of everything, and um, I think that's the hope for the continent. So I'm not perhaps quite as depressed um, about what it looks like for the next couple of years, although certainly commodity prices, if they stay down, for an extended period of time, I, I think that's also going to depress the GDP growth rates more than the bank and the fund are, are predicting. Kobus, as a South African, I think you are now accustomed to being depressed when it comes to looking at politics, <laughs> given your own politics these days right now. But uh, let me put the same question to you about where you stand on the kind of optimism, kind of pessimism scale. Uh, it's so difficult to say. I mean, South Africa is going through a, a set of problems, you know, very specific to its own kind of political realities. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that, that South Africa's economic problems are necessarily translatable to the rest of the continent. That said, South Africa's problems have a direct impact on the rest of the continent. Um, and, you know, with together with, with a, a slowdown in the Chinese economy, um, flat growth in, in, other, in other kind of powerhouses in the world, it all comes together to, to depress growth, obviously, in Africa. Um, that said, I, at the same time, like you're seeing, you know, kind of like it, within Africa, it doesn't always seem as gloomy as it looks from the outside um, because there's a, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of interesting new developments in in power generation, in um, you know, all kinds of like new e-business, um, uh, you know, new linkages being being forged between different regional economies in Africa. Um, that is also making me optimistic in certain kind of ways. And then sometimes I, you know, kind of I do feel oh, I'm just fooling myself. But other times, you know, kind of it does look very exciting. Um, so, for example, you know, kind of um, the. Um, Africa has has really jumped very far ahead of, of most of the first world, actually, in making mobile phone uh, payments, payments of small sums of money via your mobile phone, making it easier. Um, this weekend, I needed to send a little bit of money to someone. I did it in five minutes. Um, you know, it's um, the, those kind of like little ways of, 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 of shaping technology, shaping institutions to fit African realities in order to then move money around the African continent in a much faster, more efficient way. That is, it, it's happening, you know, kind of even though the, the kind of the, the larger bird's eye view picture sometimes looks a bit gloomy. So that, I think, is where I find a little bit of optimism in the sense that there, 
there are new exciting developments within the continent um, I, and that that, that way where African people are a little bit more in the driver's seat. Well, we'll take that as a positive way to end the program. And let's not forget, of course, the arrival of the standard gauge railway that will, for the first time, uh, be Africa's first international railway that will cross borders and will facilitate trade and the movement of goods and people. And I think that's something that's coming. So we will end the program on a positive note. Ambassador David Shin is an adjunct professor at the Elliott School of International Relations and really one of our great thinkers on U.S.-Africa relations, China-Africa relations, and also Africa's economic and political relationships with other parts of the world, including Turkey, India, and beyond. Ambassador Shin, thank you so much for joining us again on the program. Happy to do so. You are quite prolific out there on the interweb uh, with uh, a blog and Twitter, and if people want to follow what you're doing and where you're speaking and what you're writing about these days, where can they find you? Well, if they, if they just go to Google and put my name in, the blog will normally turn up. That's probably the simplest way to find it. And that's David Shin, S-H-I-N-N, that's two N's, if you just want to put that into Google. Uh, you are equally as easy to find, uh, Cobus. Where can people find you out there? You can find me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we curate a 24-hour constant feed of China Africa-related news items. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesq, S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And in addition to our uh, Facebook feed that we update every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if that's too much for you and you don't want that much China Africa news, we have an email newsletter that goes out every Monday with uh, four or five stories, also some academic writing and a podcast and uh, you know quotes and things like that. And it's a nice little digest of the week in review and week ahead in China Africa news. And you can sign up for that over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com or on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. And of course, if you'd like to follow this podcast, just go to iTunes.com slash ChinaAfricaProject or go to iTunes, just type in China Africa and we'll come up right there. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.